have your Bible with you this evening, we are in the Gospel of Matthew again. Matthew chapter 2 tonight is where we'll find our reading, Matthew chapter uh, 2. And we're going to begin reading at the very first verse and down to, chap- down to verse 12 of this chapter. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, reading down to verse 12. Of course it's a very familiar passage, it's one that we We'd have read all of our lives, I should imagine, or heard read all of our lives at Christmas time. Um, not not uh, by any means new territory for us. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Matthew, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah, Art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and, uh, fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. And we trust God will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. The beauty of coming to a passage like this in September rather than December is that we can unshackle it from our Christmas traditions. This evening we're focusing upon this familiar story of the wise men as recorded in Matthew's nativity account and our Christmas traditions tells us there was three of them. In fact, Roman Catholicism very helpfully gives us their names as Caspar and Balthazar and Melchior. But we've just read the text together and there is no mention of their number in the text nor indeed of their names in their text. There may have been three of them, but equally there could have been two of them, or even four or more of them. We don't know. It's assumed there was three of them because there are three gifts offered. It's also assumed that they visited Jesus with the shepherds in the manger or at the manger. And uh, that's because we envisage that 
Again, owing to our Christmas traditions, you get a Christmas card and traditionally you have the picture of the three wise men, the three kings as we sometimes call them, going toward the manger. So oftentimes it's silhouetted with the star highlighted and you have this image of the three wise men coming to the manger scene. But actually if you look carefully there in verse 11, it says... And when they were come into the house, when they were come into the house, they saw not the babe, but the young child with Mary, his mother. And so it's very likely that given the text, the context, that Herod is excited to destroy all the boys, all the children in the town of Bethlehem uh, from two years old and under. It's highly likely that Jesus is about two years of age at this time. He's not a newborn baby. And, uh, you know, he's obviously, Herod is obviously asked, you know, when did they see the star? You know, when was the portent given? And they have said, well, that's, it's been two years since we first saw uh, this star in the sky. And Evidently, then Herod takes that as his standard for the destruction of all these young lives. Also at Christmas time, and I'm sure you've sung the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Yeah, I hate to ruin your Christmas, but it's unlikely they were kings. I say that because the text twice says that Herod was a king. Twice refers to him as Herod the king. But not once does it refer to these individuals as kings. And again, there's an assumption made because of the expense involved in their lavish gifts that they must have been royalty. But we cannot say what the Bible does not say. We can't force the text to fit our uh, traditions. The gifts were lavish, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these were royal personages. And so there's a great deal, when you come to these nativity texts, there's a great deal for us to unlearn, and there is so much for us to learn with respect to their role in the Savior's uh, birth story. Well, I want you to think, first of all, tonight about the quest that they planned. It says in verse 1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now the Magi, as they were known, the Greek term for them is Magos, were men skilled in philosophy, in religion, in medicine, in science. They were also soothsayers. They were interpreters of dreams. They were men who were tremendously interested in the night sky. They were astrologers. And so their attention was arrested by this body in the sky that ultimately led them uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and they traveled, we're told, from uh, to Jerusalem from the east. Now, where from the east is precisely, again, no one knows for sure. It is often assumed, and with good reason perhaps, that they were Parthians or Persians in modern terms. They would have traveled from Iran to Israel. And so they moved over a, an extent of 2,000 miles in coming to see the Lord Jesus, probably on camel. 
So how come they came? You know, obviously they've got this bright star in the sky. Uh, if we saw a bright star in the sky tonight, it wouldn't occur to us that we should follow that star. There must have been something that stirred them to follow the star. We would probably just say, well, look, there's a very bright star in the sky, and that would be the last of it. But here were these men. They see this bright star, and they determine that this star is a signal that the Messiah, that the king have, has come into the world. And so they uh, seek to pursue the star as it moves across the sky. Well, what happens is this. In between 603 and 586 BC, uh, Israel is invaded. Judah is invaded, more specifically, by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he lays siege to uh, Jerusalem. And in the process of, of that invasion and the siege, he destroys the temple in Jerusalem. And he takes captive the brightest of Judah's young men. And among those young men was the prophet Daniel. Now, in the early part of the book that bears his name, uh, we read how this young Jewish man is brought before King Nebuchadnezzar in person. And he foretells the king of Babylon that one day his kingdom and all the kingdoms of the earth are going to give way to heaven's king. Let's have a look at that in Daniel chapter 2 this evening. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. So this king saw an image, an image that was constructed of various precious metals. And uh, this was an image of which he was the head. And he took this dream that he saw, in which he saw this image as a signal of some kind. And uh, Daniel is called for to interpret uh, what exactly his dream meant. And uh, in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, we read, Daniel says to uh, the king, having interpreted the various metals as kingdoms, as empires, he says, and in the days of these kings, Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So here's the situation. Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that there are four empires in view. Uh, he starts with the head. The head is the Babylonian Empire. And then he moves to the chest, and that represents the Persian Empire. And then he goes to the midriff, and that represents the Greek Empire. And finally, he looks beneath the midriff to the legs and the feet, and that represents the Roman Empire, ultimately splitting into east and west. And he tells them ahead of time that these empires shall come. Now, we know with hindsight what these empires were. Daniel didn't know that in terms of his history lessons, and certainly Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that. Uh, but Daniel explains to him that these empires are coming, and indeed they represent the rule of man from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the time that the Lord Jesus uh, comes. And so we uh, find here in verse 44 this prophecy that a king is coming. Now this became news in ancient Babylon. There's a great king coming and his kingdom is going to last forever. Now in the process of time, as I say, the Babylonians gave way to the Persians. The Persians overthrew the Babylonian Empire 
And uh, in that period, the God of uh, heaven that is referred to in verse 44 here uh, shows immense grace uh, to his people. And indeed, the king of Persia, King Cyrus, permits the captive Jews to return to their homeland and to build uh, the temple. But some of the Jews remain behind. And among those would have been Esther, after whom uh, we have another book of the Bible named. And Esther 8.17 tells us something specific about the people of that land at that time. It says, many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. In other words, there was some degree of conversion, mass conversion, among the, uh, the Persians. And so we uh, now find, many years later, these magi, these wise men, surrounded by Jewish uh, tradition, surrounded by Jewish influence, taking a keen interest in the Jewish scriptures, understanding the words of Daniel that a great king was coming and other Jewish writers with whom they became acquainted, they then expected a coming Lord and a coming kingdom. Let's look at some of the other scriptures that they may have been acquainted with. Let's look in Isaiah for a moment and chapter 9. Isaiah is writing, uh, you know, about 700 years B.C. And he makes this remarkable uh, prophecy concerning the Christ child. He says in in, uh, chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here is Isaiah, and he's telling us that there's a child that is to be born into the world. Not just any child, but a child who will have a kingdom that lasts forever. Same thing as Daniel says. Jeremiah says the same thing. Micah says the same thing. Look at Micah for a moment at chapter 5. The book of Micah, one of the minor prophets in chapter 5. And look at verse uh, two of this chapter, remarkable prophecy, again given, you know, uh, roughly around 600 years B.C., uh, you know, 600 years before the Lord Jesus comes along. And not only does he tell us that a child will come, uh, but he, and, and, and that it will be a ruler who comes, but he specifies the very city, the very town in which this child shall be born. He says, but thou, Bethlehem Ephraton, verse 2, Bethlehem of Judea, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, a king whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And so again, he hints at a king who has an eternal role, who has an eternal nature. And there are many prophecies that I could take you to tonight along a similar vein. So these men, knowing these prophecies, having read Isaiah, having read Daniel, having read Micah, having heard the Jews proclaim these truths, having listened to the Jews share their traditions concerning the coming Messiah, come to the conclusion that the star that they see must be some kind of omen. 
moment. It must be some kind of signal that this eternal king has arrived on the scene. By the way, if they were reading the uh, the writings of Moses, which I'm sure they did, they would have encountered the prophecy of Balaam. Balaam says in Numbers 24, 17, There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So that star was what they had seen, and that scepter was what they were seeking. That was the quest they planned. But notice the question they posed. Let's go to verses 1 through 3, 1 through 2, and read these two verses together. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now we're told that in order to find the newborn king, they followed this star. And there has been much speculation about this star. Well, what kind of star was it? What was it they saw exactly? Some people suggest it was a conjunction of the planets, Jupiter and Saturn, within the constellation of Pisces. Others believe it was a supernova, a kind of a, a star that explodes and emits light for a few weeks or a few months and then dies away. Others suggest it was perhaps Halley's Comet or some other uh, comet or maybe an asteroid that they were following or some other planetary conjunction or grouping. Still others believe it was a supernatural star, a, a creation of God made specifically for that moment in time. And it may even be the case that what they saw as the star was the Shekinah glory of God. The star came out of Judah, we're told in Numbers, and leads to the scepter, leads to the throne. And of course we know from Old Testament history that the Shekinah glory of God shone as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. But whatever it was, and we can't say with any degree of certainty, it brought them to Jerusalem and they inquired concerning the birth of this newborn king. And so they came to the the court of King Herod the Great and they asked this question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now it's been said that the wise man doesn't just give the right answers, he poses the right questions. And these wise men posed the right question, but unfortunately for them, they posed it in the wrong place. Now we have to forgive them this mistake because Bethlehem is actually quite close to Jerusalem. The star no doubt passed over the city of Jerusalem and they quite naturally presumed that any newborn king would surely be born in the palace of a king in the city of Jerusalem. That seemed to be the obvious location. But I want you to think for a moment tonight about this question that they asked. Because it's a great question. They said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he? And I want you to think about that tonight. Where is he? Let me ask you that question personally tonight. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he in your thinking? 
You know, later in this book, the Lord Jesus poses a question to the Pharisees. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? You know, they, they ask him, well, what's going on in your mind? Where's the Lord Jesus in your thinking? The book of Proverbs says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What are the thoughts that run through your mind when I mention the name of Jesus to you? What are the thoughts that, that cross your, your, your very heart when I share with you the, the name of Christ? You know, the gospel calls upon us to consider him with whom we have to do, to consider who Christ is, to decide what he means to us, to ask ourselves what our hearts say about Jesus. Where does Jesus Christ lie in your thoughts tonight? You might say to me, well, you know, Jesus Christ to me is, is just a great philosopher. Or Jesus Christ to me is a, was a great prophet. You know, uh, that's what many people around the world believe. The Muslim believes that Jesus was a prophet, uh, like Muhammad was a prophet. Some people say, well, I, I think he was a great teacher, a great leader. Others say, well, Jesus was just a good man who got a bad deal. You know, I have to confess to you that before I became a Christian, actually I barely gave Jesus as a person a thought. Jesus never crossed my mind from one day to the next. Maybe at Christmas I might have given him a little thought. Possibly the odd Easter I might have thought about him. But generally, day by day, no, Jesus didn't feature in my thinking. Jesus was of no real concern to me. But I want to say to you that now that I am a Christian, and this is the honest truth, I think about Jesus every day. I'm sure many Christian people here would agree with me on that. We think about the Lord Jesus every day. You see, when we fix our thoughts on Christ, Christ fixes our thoughts. Where is he in your thinking tonight? Is he to you the Son of God and God the Son? Is he the Savior of the world? But most importantly of all, is he your Savior tonight? Where is he in your thinking? Where is he in your life? Does Jesus have a place in your life? Is he the Lord, the king of your life? Does he control your every day? Or is Jesus of no consequence to you? Has he made no real difference uh, to you? You see, this is how we can distinguish between a real Christian and a, and a non-Christian. There are some people, and you know their thoughts of Christ, are maybe confined to Sunday mornings. You know, they come out to church once a week, uh, maybe Sunday evening or maybe some other time. They come to church and they give Christ their thoughts for an hour or so, uh, but then they think no more of him. He's made a little impact upon their lives, but that's not true of a genuine believer. There's read chorus that says, He is my everything, he is my all. He is my everything, both great and small. He gave his life for me and made everything new. He is my everything. Now how about you? Listen, is Jesus your everything? It's everything that matters to you. Does he have first place in your life? Does he feature in the decisions you make? Does he have the central role? Does he have your heart tonight? Listen, where's Jesus in your thoughts? Where's Jesus in your life? Where's Jesus in your home? Does Christ have a place in your home? You know, the Hebrew commander Joshua declared, As for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. He said, our house is open to Jesus. Our house is a home in which the Lord resides. Our house is a home in which Christ will have the honor. Our home is a Christian home. You know, when our, when our mother-in-law instructed her to return to her own pagan family, the Moabitess Ruth said this, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. And thy people shall be my people. And thy God, my God. She said, don't, don't force me to go back and, and live in a godless home. I want, I want your God, Naomi, to be my God. I want your kind of home to be my kind of home. Where's Christ in your home tonight? The Lord said of Abraham, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after me. He says, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. The Lord looks at your home. Does he say that of you? You say, I know that fellow. I know the way he runs his home. I know that woman. I know how she behaves in her own household. I know that they will command their children. I expect that they will follow after me, that they will keep the word of the Lord. What does your home say about your relationship to Jesus Christ? King David said this, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Is Christ a reality in your home? Where is he? Is the Bible an open book within the walls of your home? Or does it sit on some shelf somewhere with a bunch of dusty old encyclopedias and maybe an atlas or two and and other books that are, are rarely picked up and open? Is the Bible an open book in your home? Is prayer offered in your home? Is prayer heard within the four walls of your home? Are your children raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they being raised as believer to be believers? Or are they being raised practically atheist? Yes, sometimes we may not profess atheism, but we practice atheism. Because Christ is not in the home. Where is he? Remember when our Paul was just about four or five years of age. He came in one day. It was Halloween coming up this time of year. Halloween was on. He came up to me. I was sitting in my chair in the living room. He says, Dad. He says, can I go trick-or-treating? All the other kids write trick-or-treating. He says, can I go trick-or-treating? And I says, no, son, you cannot. He said, why not? I said, because, son, Halloween is the devil's holiday. And this is a Christian home. And we're Christians, and we don't celebrate the devil's holiday. And he stood there with his little face, disappointed that he wasn't going to collect bags of sweets. And he looked at me and he said, but I'm not a Christian. I kind of laughed to myself. It was almost like I should have said, well, fair enough, you go ahead, trick and treating, and we'll celebrate Christmas. But I thought, wasn't it good, even at that young age, that he knew he wasn't a Christian? He knew that he didn't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how did he know it? He knew it because he was raised in a home where Christ is a presence. Where is he, this born king of the Jews? Where does he feature in your home life? Where is he in your marriage? 
Where is he in your marriage? You know, we see a marriage as a union of two people. Actually, a marriage is a union of three people. There's a husband and there's a wife and then head over them both is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they grow closer to Christ, they grow closer to each other. But is Christ a presence in your marital life? When there are troubles in your marital life, is it Christ that you call upon? Is it the word of Christ that you seek? You see, this is very, uh, very much a telltale sign. I remember many years ago standing in a church and there was a young woman who was besotted with a young man who was a very dedicated Christian. And uh, they were, in, they were uh, going together. They were uh, obviously moving toward marriage, toward engagement and marriage. And he said something just in the company. He said, you know, he says, I, always, I want the Lord to be first in my life. And she spoke up and she says, oh, I thought I would be first. Oh, let me tell you, I'd have dropped her like a hot potato. She dragged him out of church in the end. Is that your marriage? Is that your marriage? I always love the story that Ivan Thompson, the old evangelist, tells about when his wife became a Christian, Sylvia became a Christian. And uh, one night they were in discussion about the things of God. And, and Sylvia says to him as he was heading out to the pub, she says to him, you know, Ivan, if you were to die, you'd, you'd go to hell. You'd burn in hell. And Ivan was annoyed at what she had said. And he went down to the pub and he was mulling it over with his friend in the pub. And he was sitting beside him and he says, you'll never believe what our, my wife said to me tonight. And he said, what did your wife say to you? She said I would go to hell. His friend says, well, Ivan, I wouldn't stand for that. You know, I would just go home and lay down the law and tell her what's what. And that's not happening, you know. And Ivan thought to himself, well, fair enough. So he headed home. And he decided he would feign leaving the house. And he packed his bags. He packed his suitcase. He's getting ready to go. He stood at the door and he stood there with his suitcase packed and he says to Sylvia, Sylvia and I, you're not the woman I married. Listen, I, I want you to know I'm tired of all this Jesus stuff. You're going to have to make a decision tonight. It's either me or Jesus. And Sylvia looked at him and said, I'm sorry you feel that way, Evan. But if you're going to give me that kind of choice, it'll have to be Jesus. And he was shocked. He always joked and said, I knew I wasn't good looking, but I didn't think I was that bad. But he was shocked that Sylvia, his dear wife, would put Christ above him. Her own husband, the man that she loved, the man that they perhaps had children with, the man that had followed her and been with her all through her, her adult life's journey. And yet she comes to this point where she surrenders her heart and life to Christ and Christ takes first place. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he in your marriage? Is he a feature? Where is he in your business? Do you take Christ to work with you? Do the people you work with understand that you're a Christian? No? Well, why is that? Well, maybe it's because you're not a Christian. Maybe you go to school and, and, and you never talk about Christ. Why? Because you don't belong to Christ. You're not a Christian. Are you ashamed of Christ? 
Now you better be careful tonight before you answer that question. Because the Bible says this in, in uh, the, book of, uh, the book of Matthew, in chapter, uh, chapter 10 and verse 33, it says, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Could it be that the reason Christ is not in your workplace, not in your schoolroom, is because Christ is not in you? That you're not saved? That someday the Lord Jesus will deny you? When you're hoping that he's going to say, uh, Come, uh, my faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Instead he's going to say, Depart from me, you wicked, into everlasting fire. I never knew you. What's it going to be? Where is he? That is born king of the Jews. Oh, there was the quest they planned, the question they posed, and the quandary they provoked. Look at verse 3 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. And when Herod the king had heard these things, notice it says, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now we read here the response of the king of Judah. Troubled is the word the Bible uses. And all Jerusalem is troubled along with him. That's a tremendously ominous statement. It tells us what kind of man the king of Judah was. You see, when he had a bad day, everybody had a bad day. History records that Jesus' birth came when King Herod was around about 70 years of age. He was approaching the end of his days. And as he headed toward the end of his days, well, we know that he began to display certain mental instabilities and began to reveal a rather cruel and dark streak in his character. He became paranoid, we're told by historians. In the end, he murders his wife, her two sons, her brother, her grandfather and her mother in an effort to suppress any possibility of revolt. And then he goes on and disinherits and kills his own firstborn son, Antipater. Now, if a person is willing to kill their own family and loved ones, you can be sure they'll kill anyone else who crosses their path that doesn't quite meet the bill. And so the great historian Josephus describes Herod as barbaric and another describes him as the malevolent maniac. Such was his insecurity that he was upset at the arrival of the wise men of the Magi and this announcement of a newborn king. He wanted to know where this king was. His, his ruse was that he would come and worship him. But of course his real, his real motive was that he would come and murder him. Herod was unsettled by the Jesus question. You know, friends, he wasn't the last man to be troubled by the thought of Jesus. There are many people who want to shut out Jesus, who want to close down any discussion about Christ, about salvation. And maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're one of those people who, when others speak to you of Jesus, you say, well, that's enough now. I don't want to hear any more about it. Or you're one of those people who say, don't go pushing your religion down my throat. 
Or one who says, listen, my religion is a, is a private matter. It's between me and God. Or maybe you're one of those that says, well, I have my own religion and you have your religion. Let's not fall out about it. You see, you're shutting down the conversation. Now, what is it you're afraid of? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of forgiveness? Are you afraid of heaven? No, I'm going to tell you the reality. Here's what you're really afraid of. You don't want to relinquish power. Just like Herod didn't want to relinquish power. Now, of course, you and I are not kings. But we have control over our own lives, our own little kingdom, as it were. And there's something in you that troubles you at the thought, the prospect of surrendering the control of your life to Christ. There's something within you that balks at that idea that says, you know what? This is my life and I'm going to live it however I please. And no preacher and no Bible and no gospel and no Jesus is ever going to tell me what to do. Is that you tonight? Are you troubled at the mention of his name? You see, that's the instinct of sin within you. You hear the gospel priest, you say, well, I I hear what you say and I understand what you say, but I don't want to give up my lifestyle and I don't want to give up my habits and I don't want to give up my friends. In other words, I don't want to change. That's where Pilate was. Unwilling to repent. Unwilling to receive Christ. Unwilling to turn around. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Are you troubled by the mention of his name? How much wiser it would be to respond as the Magi did. They heeded their witness. And they yielded to his worship. Notice they, they followed that star. They hated the witness that God gave them and they pursued that star and went on to Bethlehem. You know, I want to say this to you tonight. There may be a star in your life. A person who's a star. You say, what are you talking about? God may have given you your own personal star. Say, well, what do you mean? Well, the book of Daniel, which we referred to earlier, has a little verse right within the, the last chapter, chapter 12, that says this. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And listen, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. In other words, there may be someone in your life right now. It may be your wife. It may be your husband. It may be your, your, your friend at work. It may be a neighbor. It may be a church member. There's somebody in your life that God has brought your way. It may be a mother. It may be a father. It may be a son or a daughter. There's somebody that God has brought into your life that is pointing you to Jesus. That's God's star in your life. And when God sends a star to point a person to Jesus, a wise man follows it until he finds the Lord. Is there a star in your life? Someone who's been speaking to you about the love of God for your soul, pointing you to Christ? 
Well, here's what you need to do. You need to follow that counsel and take one step more and place your trust in the Savior. They were wise because they heeded the witness and they were wise because they worshipped the Lord. The Bible says they worshipped him in verse 11 with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And gold, we know, is the usual gift to give unto a king. Frankincense was a scent that was used in the duties of the priests of Israel as they sacrificed before the Lord. And myrrh was a plant in which the oil that it, uh, that it released was primarily used as embalming uh, ointment. How interesting that that third gift appears on the list of presents offered. Embalming ointment, a very unusual thing to give a newborn baby. It's like showing up at a maternity ward with a wreath for the newborn child. You wouldn't dream of it. You think, what kind of present is that to bring a new mother and her baby? A wreath. Something associated with death. But I want you to understand something. These men realized that the Lord Jesus, now I want you to hear this, was born specifically for the purpose of dying. We born and we die. We're born and we die. But he was born to die. That's why he came into the world. To die. And those gifts that they offer recognize his person and his work. You know, that gold speaks to us of royalty. And that frankincense speaks to us of him being our representative. And that myrrh speaks of him being our redeemer. He's our king. He's our great high priest. He's our savior. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he in your life? tonight. The great Bible teacher F.B. Mayer once wrote, God comes to men in the sphere with which they are most familiar, to Zacharias in the temple, to the shepherds in the field, to the wise men by the portent of heaven. He knows just where to find us. Well, friends, he knows just where to find you. The question is, do you know just where to find him? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he in your life? Is he honestly your king? Your savior? Does he reside in your heart? Without pretense, without hypocrisy, is he a presence In your mind, is he a reality in your soul? Tonight, may I encourage you to surrender your life to him as Lord and Savior. To be born again by the Spirit of God and to make Christ king of your life. Where is he? Let's pray.